So for those of you who are unfamiliar with the liturgical calendar, if you didn't grow up in a traditional church setting, we are in the second week of Advent. As a whole, this season is described as a season of waiting. It's a season of anticipation. It's a season of excitement. It's also a season of reflection that's all leading up to the celebration of the birth of Jesus. More specifically, the season of Advent helps us to consider what theologians call the incarnation. It's when God took on flesh. The implications of this are huge for us. From a personal standpoint, we understand that Jesus can identify with us, he can sympathize with with us in our weakness. He knows, in a sense, what we feel. He understands our fears and our limitations. From a cosmic standpoint, the participation of God in the human drama allows the story of redemption to advance, ultimately reaching its climax in the cross and the empty tomb. That is, ultimately, it ends with the death of death and the hope of new life through Christ. Some folks have said that you cannot properly celebrate Christmas without also celebrating Easter. For the birth of Jesus, taken apart from his life, his death, and his resurrection, would be powerless, it would be meaningless. It would be similar to leaving our image of Jesus as a tiny infant lying there in his ghost manger, just looking at his baby Einstein developmental videos, learning about shapes and colors. For many of us, Advent is a joyous time. It's marked by family traditions, it's marked by reunions with old friends, perhaps a short reprieve from work or a break from school, which I know a lot of you students are looking forward to with great anticipation and uh, excitement. My family is not immune to traditions. There are certain things that we do on a yearly basis. One of those things is each year we go to Ocean City and we sit in the freezing cold to ride around on that little tram that goes around the park and we look at the lights. The same lights every year with the same songs and each time we hear the children getting excited for that one Jaws scene, if you're familiar, it's like the doo-doo, 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 and then it launches into your favorite Christmas carol, which is great. Um, It's just, it's really good. The reason why I think I go is because each year we go to Dumpsters and Dumpsters has the best cherry Coke that you've ever had in your entire life. I think it's the ice uh, that they use, but it's it's a beautiful thing. Megan Twilley knows what I'm talking about. Megan Twilley Oxford knows what I'm talking about. Um, And if you can just spice that up even a touch by getting a shrimp basket, then you're doing some real damage uh, for your your holiday traditions. Um, But those are some things that, that my family and I like to do. For others, however, the holidays highlights a deep sense of brokenness and longing. It's not just of these silly traditions um, that I've just described. Perhaps it's the way these silly traditions have changed over the years. It's the empty chair that now occupies a familiar place at the table. It's the one dish or the way that it was served that is now in the hands uh, coming from, from a new kitchen and a new cook. This past Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday, and this was our first Thanksgiving without my grandmother, and you could just see like the hole on the table where that macaroni and cheese used to to sit. For others, it, it might be the forced interaction with those who don't really know you or understand you or understand what you believe and where you're trying to go. For others, it might be the loneliness that is sometimes caused by the sentimentality of Christmas, Those things can make it difficult. For the latter, I believe that we can blame Mariah Carey a little bit for that, and ABC Family Network, just for all of the the Christmas shows they put on there. The disconnect that some of us feel, though, with regard to the holidays um, could also be the result of something that's much grander. 
It's the apparent tension between the world that we believe in, the world that we proclaim in worship, and the world as it actually is. In our sermon series on the book of Mark, we have read many stories where Jesus preaches about the inbreaking of the kingdom. This concept of kingdom is sometimes difficult for us to understand, but one scholar describes it simply as God's dream for the world come true. Everything that had been planned, everything that Israel was waiting for, everything necessary for salvation and redemption and hope, Jesus declares, it's here. It's happening right now with me. To demonstrate this new reality, Jesus begins to perform miracles that overturn the status quo. He heals people. He feeds people. He pronounces sinners to be forgiven. He invites the broken and the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed to eat with him. And even more radically, he invites them to follow him, to partner with him, to become, as it were, his friends. He includes women in his ministry, and as we will see, he entrusts them with huge responsibilities for the proclamation of the good news. And this, at that time especially, was truly counter-cultural. He didn't seem to fit the mold that anyone was expecting at that time, but from our vantage point, now 2,000 years removed from, from what he was doing, his teachings, his miracles, his invitation to those on the margins, they seemed to foreshadow the job that he came to do to put the world to rights, to fix what is broken, to reconcile God and humanity. Put another way, and this is a way that we have uh, said around here, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God was and is restoring the world and us to wholeness. This is what we believe, this is what we preach, this is what we gather here to celebrate each week, not just during Advent, but each week we gather to celebrate these truths, yet a glance at the news often demonstrates a different reality, not the kingdom, not God's dream for the world come true. It seems to be not order, but chaos, not divine control, but humanity's rampant thirst for violence that is spawned by hatred and deep-seated prejudice. And for some, this tension between what we believe and what we tend to see is difficult to reconcile. After the mass shooting in San Bernardino on Wednesday, the headline of the Daily News read, God isn't fixing this. The subtitle went even further as it aptly summarized the sentiments of many Americans who have become skeptical of religion and its potential usefulness to evoke or occasion change. It read, as the latest batch of innocent Americans are left lying in pools of blood, cowards who could truly end gun scourge continue to hide behind useless platitudes. Politics aside, the platitudes that are referred to in this statement were offered by elected officials via Twitter, and they each included some variation of the now culturally mandated spiritual refrain, our thoughts and prayers go out to the families. Now, I doubt that this level of skepticism encapsulates your view of prayer and its power and its necessity. I hope that that is true, at least. Prayer has always been linked to action. It is not a moment of inaction. It is not a moment where we do nothing. 
Even throughout scripture, there are powerful testimonies of prayer that actually appear to change God's mind in certain circumstances. The prayer of his people affects change and causes God to listen and to respond. But still, even in spite of that, I wouldn't be too surprised if we, like the editors of the Daily News, also felt a sense of frustration at what's going on. In this season of Advent, which is marked by waiting, we too are waiting. We are waiting for God to act. We are waiting for things to change. We are waiting for peace to invade. It's a tall task to talk about peace on this of all weeks. This Advent is usually structured according to different themes, and this being the second week is is structured around this topic of, of peace. With the wake of world tragedies in Paris and Beirut and Baghdad and Cameroon and Nigeria still in our minds, and in our own country, the senseless acts of violence that have taken place in Colorado Springs and Southern California um, even more recently, in light of these events, peace seems like a figment of our imagination. It seems like a dream. It seems like an empty hope. Even before the shootings took place, I had been considering the opening verses of Isaiah chapter 2. It reads, this is what Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord." The early chapters of Isaiah were probably written during a time of political and military unrest throughout Israel and Judah. These were two separate kingdoms at the time, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. They had two different kings. They had two different political happenings going on. They had two different alliances. There was lots of differences between these two, but they were both facing potential Assyrian invasion. The Assyrian empire at the time was the dominant power of the day. Both Israel and Judah were insignificant on the world stage. They were small and relatively powerless apart from divine intervention or a strong military alliance, which neither one of them had. A serious growth and movement at this time was not good news. The armies of Assyria had perfected the art of warfare. They were relying heavily on these things called siege engines, which were basically like battering rams with these big, tall, guards and you could kind of hide yourself in that and the battering ram would go up into the, the, the city walls and begin to destroy those defenses. Once the siege engine had done its work, the, the wall would be fractured and it would allow troops to go into the city and do whatever it is that they wanted to do with the inhabitants. In the background of Isaiah 2, warfare is a constant threat. In fact, the potential for defeat and massive casualties loomed large, but still the prophet looks ahead to a day when the nations, the enemies, the bad guys, the people behind those battering rams that were potentially destroying their walls, when those people would come to Jerusalem, 
to the temple, to the place where God dwelled to seek guidance. And Isaiah concludes that Yahweh would teach these pilgrims so that they might walk in his paths. The nation's acceptance of Yahweh's teaching would also result in the Torah, the law, the instruction going out from there, presumably to an even wider audience, which in turn would result in peace. There would be no need for swords or spears in this time. Violence would become a thing of the past. The only use for weapons in this envisioned world would be as implements for the planting and harvesting of food. The prophet looked forward to this day, looked forward to a day of unprecedented peace. And he did so in the midst of a reality where violence was everywhere around him. I can't help but to be reminded of the artwork that I have shown here on a few different occasions. It's called the Tree of Life. As its name suggests, it's a sculpture of a tree and a couple of animals, and it's made of decommissioned weapons that were surrendered during a time of peace in Mozambique. I find it interesting that the initiative for people handing over their weapons was actually led by an Anglican bishop. He created this organization called Transforming Arms into Tools. One commentator describes the mission of this organization. It says, weapons once used by combatants on both sides. There was a civil war that was happening in Mozambique through the better part of the, the 1990s, I believe. It said, weapons used by both sides were voluntarily surrendered under amnesty, and in exchange, the people who gave up these weapons would receive practical tools garden tools, sewing machines, bicycles, roofing materials. The weapons would then be used as art. The bishop said, the purpose of the project is to disarm the minds of people and to disarm the hands of people. Why should this world have hungry people, he asked. Why should this world have a shortage of medicines and yet the amount of money which can be made available almost instantly for armament purposes is just amazing. I felt I should be part of shaping that peace. Of course, we find in the book of Micah and in the book of Isaiah where it says they will turn their swords into plowshares and people will sit under their trees and nothing will frighten them. Admittedly, this is a very strange Christmas message. But it summarizes both the heart of Advent and I think that it helps us to have a framework for thinking about our current situation as well. Isaiah and the Old Testament prophets and this Anglican bishop in Mozambique, they were waiting, but they were not waiting without action. Returning to our passage in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 5 is very important. In it, we find an injunction to God's people to walk in the light of the Lord. This is Isaiah's application. This is what they were supposed to do. One scholar writes, if Yahweh is committed to achieving a purpose whereby the nations let their lives be shaped by Yahweh's teaching, if Yahweh, if God is committed to the foreign people who do not even know him being radically transformed by who he is and his teaching and his, and his instruction, then the least that Israel can do is to let that teaching that they hold so dear shape their own lives right now. And if they do, they might even be used in getting the nations to come to Jerusalem, to compelling them to accept the teachings of their God, to living out his instruction, to becoming a people of peace, to putting their siege engines away. 
I think that there's something that we can glean from this vision that Isaiah is painting for us. Our hope is not out there somewhere. It's not a pie in the sky idea or a vision of peace that's absent from the hard work of doing justice, embracing faithful love and commitment, and walking humbly with our God. It's also not devoid of the even harder work of reconciliation, of loving our enemies, and yes, praying for those who persecute us or others. I don't want to overread the text in Isaiah, but I would imagine that he anticipated inclusion of these foreigners, these, these warriors, would have been a jagged pill for Israel to swallow. Perhaps this included Assyria. Perhaps it included the people who had caused so much hurt and pain. And here, in this text, they are included in this peacemaking. Even more difficult, the people of God are being asked to participate, not to watch God do some magic show, but to be the instruments that he uses to bring these people to a new understanding of who he is. They are called to walk in the light of the Lord so that things might change. I think for so many of us, our faith is something that's privatized and individualized and we don't think that the things that we do or say or pray have any bearing in the world around us. From this text in Isaiah, I don't think it's too far of a leap for us in our current situation. We live in a world where mass shootings are becoming the norm. We live in a world where terrorism is a threatening reality, where violence is attached to religious ideologies on both sides of the aisle. We live in a world where many in response have resorted to overgeneralizations, to name calling, to hate speech, to what I would call the antithesis of the kingdom message that Jesus taught and then sent his disciples out to share. Isaiah is not envisioning spiritual platitudes, these cliches that we have crocheted on pillows that you see at your grandmother's house or on the coffee mugs. It's not reduced to that. It's not reduced to easy answers, but rather what Isaiah is calling us to do is to live righteously. We must not sit idly by. For we too, as followers of Jesus, are called to walk in the light of the Lord in the hope that things might actually change. I can't clarify what this will look like for you. I can't clarify what in your particular situation it looks like for you to walk in the light of the Lord, but I can say that I'm at least hopeful that it's part of this larger picture where all of us as the body of Christ are growing and wrestling with who God is and what our faith is and who Jesus is calling us to be. For me, I've been consistently challenged by the example of Jesus who knew what it was like to live in the midst of threats of violence and to actually have that violence acted out upon him to the point of death, and yet his teachings in the midst of that were dominated by a call to peace. It was not dominated by a call to inaction or passivity or retreat. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers because they will be called the children of God. That is not easy work, but it is necessary work. Again, for me, this has meant slowly moving away from prejudice. This has meant 
slowly trusting that justice is not mine to bestow, but it's the Lord's. This has meant slowly allowing God's word to change me instead of me trying to manipulate it to say what it is that I want it to say. This has meant slowly becoming an advocate for others who don't look like me, think like me, act like me. This has meant slowly understanding that grace is not just for me. I say slowly to characterize all these actions because my first inclination has proven to be the opposite. It's to revert back to my past actions. It's to conform Jesus into my image. It's to make my own ideas and thoughts the standard of what is best. The example that Jesus sets demonstrates again something radical. In the midst of violence, he instructs us to turn the other cheek. He calls to Peter, who after a fit of rage chopped off some dude's ear, he says, put your sword away. And as Jesus' life was leaving his body, he pleads, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And when I began this talk, I mentioned the difficulties that this time of year can bring for people. It's the hurt, it's the pain, it's the loneliness, it's the suffering. And as we conclude, I think it's important for us to pause and consider a different sort of peace as well. It's the peace that passes all understanding. The peace that is said to guard our hearts and minds in Christ. The peace that allows us to heal, to forgive ourselves, to be whole again. For some of us, we watch from afar at these violent outbursts and they just don't really seem to connect because our lives are demonstrating their own forms of unrest. That seems like something that's out there somewhere and it's it's not ours yet because we might be dealing with our own stuff. Broken relationships, financial insecurity, unemployment, racial tension that is dividing communities and ours is not immune from that, prejudice, sickness, death, fear, lack of self-acceptance and self-worth, depression. We live in a world that is seemingly devoid of peace on many different fronts. And we are waiting. But we must not wait without acting. We must not wait idly by. And this doesn't mean that we simply attempt to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps or will ourselves into a different reality. It means that we trust, that we actively trust in the midst of adversity, in the midst of pain, in the midst of what seems to be pure and unadulterated hopelessness. And it means that the object of our trust is not ourselves, it's not our own efforts, it's not our friends, it's not our pastors, it's not our parents, it's not our people, but it's the risen Jesus, the very one who knows who you are, the very one who created you, who understands and sympathizes with you in all of your weaknesses. This is the good news of the gospel. It's for you, the broken and the downtrodden those who long for hope and for peace. On both of these fronts, one, the large-scale violence that we see throughout our nation and throughout the world, 
and in our own brokenness. On both of these fronts, the invitation to Isaiah's audience, I think, is similar for us today. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Perhaps when we do so, we might find peace. And perhaps we might, as this text suggests, inspire peace in the hearts of those around us. Let's pray together. God, I ask that your word would challenge us, that your word would call us to reflect on who we are in this moment. Perhaps these big, um, these big things that we see in the news are not our issues at this time, but perhaps we're struggling with, with many other things. I know that for many of us in this room, peace is something that we need, that we long for, that you have promised to us through your son. And I ask that in some small way, as we begin to trust you, as we begin to follow you, as we begin to walk in the light of your teaching, that we would experience peace. That you would give us, as you've promised to give us, the peace that passes all understanding that we cannot explain, that we cannot put into terms, that we cannot fathom that you would allow us to receive the peace that will guard our hearts and minds when those anxious thoughts invade, when those um, whispers that we are not worth anything and that we're, we're nothing, that they would be silenced by the power of your spirit, that when we feel hopeless in the face of violence, that when we feel hopeless in the face of threats and potential disaster, that you would allow us to be courageous and that you would allow us to be the people that are used to change the lives of those around us. God, we ask for your strength, for your boldness, for your courage. Help us to see your son Jesus for who he is and help us to attempt to live as he is calling us to live. In the midst of this, God, we ask that you would inspire good conversations, that you would help us to not feel as though we have all the answers, but you would challenge us and mold us and shape us. And God, even when it hurts, that you would break us and conform us into the image of your son. It's in his precious name that we pray, amen.